Trinity Baptist Church. The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son brings joy to his father, a foolish son grief to his mother. Ill-gotten treasures of no lasting value, for righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. He who gathers crops in summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. Blessings crown the head of the righteous, but violence overwhelms the mouth of the wicked. The memory of the righteous will be a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Daddy. Well, hello, everybody. It's great to see you again. Um, As you know, uh, for the past 10 weeks or so, we have been doing a a series through the book of Proverbs called Words to Live By. And each week we are uh, considering how wisdom uh, penetrates into some aspect of our lives, uh, such as fear or friendship or conflict. Uh, This past week, Dave Page uh, gave the message, it was a terrific message, on generosity and and how wisdom uh, plays a part in our generosity and our ability to be generous. And if you were here, uh, what you might remember is that he, he said that biblical generosity, biblical generosity has its roots in the recognition that everything that we see, every good thing that is in our lives and around our lives is given to us and supported by the Lord. And that is a very important concept to consider and to remember, especially going into today's topic, because today uh, we're going to build on generosity in talking on wealth. Wealth. What is wealth? Uh, What is it exactly? How do you define wealth? Well, um, if you were, well, it's very subjective, isn't it? It's a, it's a, it's a, subject, it's a very subjective thing. Um, studies, for instance, have shown that when people are considering their, their wealth, they always look up. Uh, for instance, if someone was to say, how much money do you need in order to be considered rich? Well, um, a person who makes a net income of 40000 would say 80000 And a person who makes 80000 would say uh, double that. And interestingly, even a person who makes $5 million would say they need $10 million to be considered rich. So it's, it's very subjective. If you were to Google the word wealth, you would find thousands of articles uh, that talk about uh, sustaining your assets, protecting your assets, uh, market trends, uh, anything to increase and protect your assets. If, if you were to look up the definition, it would say something along the lines of a great quantity or store of money, valuable possessions, property, or other riches, it is the state of being rich. 
But as we know, rich is difficult to, to discern. Um, I, um, I, I heard this quote uh, regarding wealth that I thought was really interesting. And it said this, Everyone would be perfectly happy driving a Ford Taurus if they knew that everyone else was driving a Yugo. Do you remember the Yugo? Do you remember the Yugo? Time magazine listed the Yugo as one of the worst 50 cars in history. Uh, in the article, it said Malcolm Bricklin, the American automobile entrepreneur, wouldn't be satisfied until he had forced every American to walk to work. To that end, in 1985, he began importing the Yugo GB, which turned out to be the Mona Lisa of bad cars. Built in Soviet bloc Yugoslavia, the Yugo had the distinct feeling of something assembled at gunpoint. <laughs> Interestingly, in a car where carpet was listed as a standard feature, Yugo had a rear window defroster, reportedly to keep your hands warm while you pushed it. <laughs> the electrical system, such as it was, would sizzle and things would just fall off. The engine would blow up with no notice or any reason whatsoever. The Yugo or not. Now, can you see yourself now driving your Ford Taurus? past all those other people in their Yugos, tipping the seat back, rolling the windows down, driving real slow and nodding your head as if to say, oh yeah, baby, check out my ride. <laughs> what is it about us that makes us feel like not only do we have to have enough, but we have to have more than those who are around us. There's something about the allure of, of money uh, that makes us feel like our, our thirst is never quenched. Now, if we look at the book of Proverbs, uh, we find that there are some very positive things to say about money. For instance, in Proverbs 10.4, uh, it says, Lazy hands... Make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. Okay? And then in Proverbs 22, 7, it says, The rich rule over the poor, but the borrower is the slave to the lender. Okay, so if we look at these passages, we could conclude that having a good work ethic and, and, and working hard and acquiring money, it, it's a good thing. These are positive things. But if you continue to look through the book of Proverbs, what you find is that there are other passages concerning riches. In, in the, and some of them are not so positive. In, in Proverbs 28, 11, it says, A rich man may, may be wise in his own eyes, but a poor man who has discernment sees through him. And in Proverbs eleven four, it says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. So which is it? Is it... Is it a good thing, or is it a bad thing to accumulate wealth? Well, it, it's both. 
You see, we need to remember that Proverbs is, is designed to be a book that instills wisdom. And so the writer is objective. He's, he's looking at riches uh, in, in various contexts. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. It's like fire. If fire is in your fireplace, it's a good thing. But if fire is in your living room, not so much, right? Uh, and interestingly, the, the book of Proverbs isn't the only place where the Bible points out the, the potential dangers of making money and, and being wealthy. It's all throughout the Old and the New Testament. Um, did you know, for instance, that the Bible offers more than 2,000 verses about money? More than 2,000. 15% of the things that Jesus talked about were about money and possessions. He spent more time talking about money and possessions than all of the verses on heaven and hell combined. Why? Because he understood that, well, money and wealth is a good thing, and there are many places where it says it's a good thing, he also understood that there are some dangers associated with it. And, th and that's what we need to consider. One of the most famous accounts uh, that we find in Scripture about money and, and Jesus speaking to it was in Luke 18 when he encounters uh, the rich young ruler. And uh, for the sake of, of what we're doing today, uh, I, well, I'd like to go through the passage, but... I'd like to give the, the rich young ruler a name. Uh, it's helpful for me to, to picture the rich young ruler in, in a contemporary setting. And so for, for today, I'm going to call him Zuckerberg. And no relation to Mark. Uh, although, Mark, if you're listening to this, uh, you are young and you are rich and you are the ruler of your domain. <laughs> uh, so Zuckerberg comes to Jesus, and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Zuckerberg? No one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And Zuckerberg says, all these things I, I have done, I've kept them since, since I was a boy. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. You have to give to the poor, all that you have to the poor. Sell everything that you have, give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. And when Zuckerberg heard this, he became very sad. He became very sad uh, because he was very wealthy. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this asked, well, who then can be saved? 
And Jesus replied, with what is impossible with man is possible with God. Okay, so let's unpack this for a moment. Uh, When Jesus said that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, is he saying that rich people can't be saved? Yes, he is. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. He can't possibly mean that. He cannot possibly mean that because think of all the faithful believers in the Old and the New Testament who, who had an abiding relationship with God uh, but also enjoyed wealth. Uh, think of Cornelius or, or Lydia or Priscilla and Aquila or Philemon or Barnabas, or David, or Job, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All these people had intimate relationships with God, uh, and they also enjoyed wealth. So that cannot be what, what Jesus was saying. And, and notice that Jesus didn't say what is impossible with rich people is possible with God. He said what is impossible with man. So what he's inferring there is that everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone, every man, every woman, every rich person, every poor person, every white person, black person, free, slave, anyone would qualify for having fallen short of the glory of God. So why then, in this passage, does Jesus single out rich people? Why did he do that? Well, I think the primary reason is that He's trying to meet the, the, the specific needs of Zuckerberg, the rich young ruler. But also because he knows Zuckerberg is not alone in this. He knows that, that money and, and the accumulation of wealth can be a stumbling block for all of us. Look at how Jesus deals with, with Zuckerberg when he says, Good teacher, what must I do to in, inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments. And then he lists the commandments. Why is Jesus suggesting that salvation could possibly come through the commandments in this passage? Do you think that he's saying that if we just follow the commandments, we could be saved? See, I think what's happening here is Zuckerberg believes that if he would just follow the commandments to the best of his ability, that that would be enough. And so Jesus is kind of putting him to the test here to some degree. He's saying, okay, let's say that were possible. Follow all the commandments. Now Zuckerberg says that he's done it. He assumes that he's kept all the commands since, the fa- since he was a boy, and he says so. But has he? I mean, what is the first commandment? You remember? Don't put any gods before me. Right. Okay, so Jesus knows that's the first commandment. And so he's challenging Zuckerberg uh, to sell everything that he has. Now, you know, Jesus never asked anybody else ever to sell everything that they had in order to find salvation. But he's looking at Zuckerberg, and he's saying, for you, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, 
Come and follow me, and then you'll have eternal life. Okay? You'll have treasure in heaven. And when Zuckerberg heard this, he became very sad. And what that means is he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. Uh, He couldn't sell everything that he had uh, because nothing was more important to him than his money and his wealth. That's where he found his identity. That's where he found his security. Uh, To some degree, that was his God. And so what Jesus is pointing out here in kind of a roundabout way is you haven't really followed all the commands, Zuckerberg. You think you have, but you haven't. No one has. Okay? Jesus knows that it can be a stumbling block for all of us. Now, it can distract us from the most important things in life. Think of all the time and energy that goes into making money and accumulating things. It can distract us from the most important things, like relationships, like love and intimacy and character development, our our relationship with God. Now, if we're too busy, it's impossible to cultivate those other things. And, And yet we continue to cultivate, we continue to... To, to try and raise funds and, and, and work hard to get the things that we think we need. Um, and I was thinking about this in light of my own life, and I realized I've fallen into this the same as anyone else. When I first moved to New York to go to seminary, I put everything that I owned into a Subaru wagon, and I drove from Washington State to New York. And after a few years of seminary, Uh, I graduated, and then I I moved again. And that time when I moved, I had to get a 10-foot U-Haul to move all my stuff to my next apartment. Then, a few years later, I got married, and I needed to move all of my stuff into Elizabeth's apartment. And it was a small apartment, but I realized at that point that I needed a 20-foot U-Haul to get all of my stuff down to Elizabeth's small apartment. And, uh, you know, it, it was kind of like that, that scene from Harry Met Sally, when Harry Met Sally, when, when Harry shows up at, at Jess's place as he's wheeling out that Roy Rogers coffee table. You remember that scene? And, and he's putting it out on the curb, and, and Harry looks at him and, as if to say, what are you doing? You know, and, and Jess says, don't say a word. You know, it's... It's like these things that we think are important to us, you know, often just end up out on the curb, right? And, and some of us have so much junk that we, we, we keep accumulating things over the years. And we're, we're, we have so much stuff that we don't even, we don't even know what it is or, or where it is. Or, you know, some of us could get robbed. And you'd have a really hard time trying to even realize what was missing. You know, you, you, uh, you find yourself looking in your closet for something a year later, and, and you're like, where is that? Oh, yeah, the robbery. <laughs> you know, we, we've got so much stuff. Did you know, I mean, I, I did some research on this. Americans have 2.3 billion square feet of self-storage space. That's seven square feet of storage space for every man, woman, and child 
in the United States. Do you know that if we put all those storage units back to back, it would cover Boston? That's how much stuff we have. You know, and according to the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Americans spend more time buying things than they do on the phone, sending emails, participating in civic events or religious activities, pursuing education, or even caring for their children. These are unbiased studies that are looking into this. Uh, the question is, is it worth it? And, and what's the motivation behind it? Now, in Proverbs 30, 8 and 9, it says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Last week, uh, when Dave was giving the message, he mentioned the, the Rwandan people and how incredibly generous they were and how it really impacted him. Um, and I think what impacted him was the fact that they're so willing to give in spite of the fact that they have so little. Uh, if you've been to Rwanda, you, you would know that a lot of the people that we interact with there have absolutely nothing. They might have a, a mud hut, uh, some of their huts have uh, banana leaves for, for a roof. Uh, and yet, there's something about the Rwandan people that, that enables them to be incredibly generous, incredibly joyful. Uh, they're quick to praise God for the things that they have. Uh, every day is a gift from God. And... and and they recognize that, and it, and it kind of manifests itself in the way they interact with one another. Now, if we contrast that to, to most of us here in America, um, we have more than most Rwandans could ever imagine. And yet, if you're like me, a lot of times I'm feeling discontent with what I currently have. You know, and thinking, you know, I could really use this, or I, I really need more of that. And, and, and I guess, to some degree, when I do purchase things, for a little while, it, it gives me a sense of security, or a sense of well-being, you know, but that tends to be fleeting, right? Um, and the reality of it is, no matter what I buy, uh, or no matter how much I accumulate, um, those things can't protect me from the real storms in life. You know, it's a pseudo sense of security. I mean, think about it. Sickness, death, financial disasters, broken relationships. Um, what could wealth do to prevent those things? Not much. But if we spend too much time focusing on the accumulation of wealth, what happens is we are not investing in the things that will prepare us and equip us to weather storms like that. Um, I heard a quote that said, uh, you know, we, we buy things that we don't need to impress people that we don't like. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's only when we're intentional 
about in, investing in the things that really matter. You know, that the eternal things that we find the security that we're looking for. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at when he interacts with Zuckerberg and when he addresses the crowd. You know, he's trying to get us to recognize that be careful, you know, because the things that you're going for are not going to give you the salvation you're looking for. But I can. And he wants to do that. Um, there's a, a book that I read uh, not too long ago called The Life God Blesses. And uh, it's a, a book written by Gordon MacDonald. And uh, in this book, he, he tells the story of a, of a really rich man who sets out to build the most lavish sailboat that has ever been built. And um, he appoints the sailboat with colorful sails and complex rigging and comfortable appointments and all the conveniences that you could imagine inside the cabin. The decks are, are made with beautiful teak wood and, and, and all the fittings are, are, are custom polished brass that have been made specifically for this boat. And on the stern, he painted beautiful gold letters uh, and he named the boat Persona. So he wrote these golden letters on the back of the boat, Persona. And as he was doing all these things, the man couldn't help but fantasize about all the admiration that he would receive once this boat was completed from his fellow members at, at the yacht club. And when he finally launched the boat, uh, it was better than he had anticipated. I mean, the, the, the docks were just filled with people that had, that had come down to watch this, this boat uh, leave the harbor for its maiden voyage. They cheered, and, and he, he was just thrilled. And, and when the persona got out into the waterways, and it was just a, a blip on the horizon... Uh, a storm started brewing. You know, the wind started picking up, and, and before he knew it, there was 15-foot waves just slamming the sides of this boat. And there was nobody around to help. And what ended up happening was the persona capsized. And a few days later, when they found the persona upside down, uh, and they, they could not find the captain anywhere. They, they, they hauled the boat back into the marina, and they realized that the keel on the boat had really been designed poorly, and that there was an inadequate ballast. And everyone that saw that said, you know, if the man who built this boat had given any consideration to what was under the waterline, the things that couldn't be seen by other people, uh, he would have addressed that issue. And the persona would have been able to weather a storm twice as great as what it went through. Uh, but he didn't because he didn't think it was important because no one could see those things. 
And, and I think that that is, is one of the dangers of, of wealth. You know, wealth is good. Remember earlier I said it's like fire. If it's in the fireplace, it's a great thing. You know? And I think God wants to give us wealth so that we can use it to glorify him and to, to be generous with other people. And I think that's a great thing. Uh, but the problem is we, we turn it into something more than that. We turn it into something that attempts to create a new identity for ourselves. And uh, it gives us um, a sense that we have it together. You know? um, we find security in it. And, and when we find security in our things, it's really easy to, to just be confident in those things and not look to God. You know? And what God is hoping is that we will put all of our confidence in him. That he would be our security, that he would be our salvation. Okay? So how can we be sure that our identity and our security are rooted in the things that are eternal? Uh, And that money isn't distorting our lives, but instead it's enhancing it. Okay? Well... There's four things that I thought would be helpful, and I wanted to look at them real quickly. Uh, first, we need to assume that when it comes to money, uh, we're in denial. We're in denial of its power over us. Uh, Jesus was treating the rich young ruler uh, as if he were under the influence. And so he was pretty harsh with him. In the same way that you would be harsh with a person that, that you'd been out with and you had a few drinks and you were walking out to the parking lot and you could see that they were stumbling toward their car. You'd be harsh with them. You would grab the keys from them and you would drag them over to the passenger side and you would sit them down and say, you're not driving. Okay. The fact that we live in New York City means that we are surrounded by millions of people that have more than we do. And when human nature kicks in, um, our tendency is to compare ourselves to people that have more than we do and then make an assessment as to how we're doing. Okay, that's why I said we can assume that we're in a state of denial to some degree. Uh, Number two, we need to assume that the amount of money that we do have Uh, well, we're able to give away a lot more of it than we think we can. We can make that assumption. Uh, A lot of times when we have the opportunity to be generous, the next thing that kicks in is, hmm, can I afford to do that? I mean, I kind of want to do this, and I wanted to get that. And and you kind of go through the grocery list of things. And the tendency then is to kind of withhold some of the giving that we might do. Now, as, as Dave said last week, uh, when we give generously, I mean really generously, when we give sacrificially, uh, it releases us from that hold that money has on us. Uh, and so we, we can assume that we can do more and try to do more. Uh, number three, we need to change our definition of wealth. Uh, Think of the people that you know who 
are wealthy. Not because of their money, but because of other things. They're wealthy because of their honesty, or their purity of heart, or their deep friendship, uh, or their faith, their character, um, maybe their family. There's a lot of things that go into wealth that, that go beyond just money. We need to decide what, what really has value in our lives. You know, what really matters. And determine that those things are not for sale. So you have to determine ahead of time those things that you want to protect. Because otherwise, everything's for sale. And finally, we need to consider what Jesus did for us. Um, when we were spiritually bankrupt, Jesus gave everything. If you think about it, Jesus was a rich young ruler as well. He had everything in heaven that he could possibly want, and he gave it up. He emptied himself so that we could be made righteous, so that we could receive all the riches of heaven. Uh, the security that would be eternal and not fleeting. And we need to rejoice in that and think about that and meditate on that, uh, on what that means to us until money is simply money and nothing more than that. Okay? Because if money becomes more than money, then it becomes an idol. And I think that Jesus wants us to be free from that kind of brokenness. He wants us to be liberated. And to do that, we can do these four things. Okay? Um, Let's pray about that and see what God will do in our lives. Lord, uh, this is a challenging message. It's, It's challenging because... You know, in a place like New York, you know, all of us have a lot more than we probably need. And, uh, and it probably has a handle on us. And if it does, and it's preventing us from the kind of intimacy that, that you would have for us, or preventing us from entering into the calling that you have for us or investing in the things that you really believe are important and ultimately you want us to become more like you. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to that and, uh, and liberate us from that because we don't want to trade something that's good and money is good for something that's great eternal, life-giving. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.